Am I properly wired? <laughs> That's what you think. Huh? <laughs> okay, let's pray together. for us overwhelms us. So great a love. So great a love. Oh, we love each other. It's so small. Your love for us is so great. It's awesome to us that you could love us so. That you would want to love us so. Even in the midst of all our wrong and confusion, you love us so. Free us now by the gracious, merciful, nevertheless righteous work of your Spirit to receive that love. so to be healed and so to be made right before you. We're infinitely grateful that we can do what we do now in the presence of such a love. In praise of the name of Jesus. In praise. At the name of Jesus Christ, who died, who harrowed the gates of hell so that we might see such a love, such a love. Bestow your spirit upon us in ways that we have never dreamed of and fill us with your life, your life, your renewal and your love for one another. In his name, in his name, in the name of Jesus Christ, and in the name of the Father, as well as the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You think I won't use it out, don't you? Last night I was talking about the dimensions of human transformation under the power of the Holy Spirit. And I was talking about the self, the world, void, holy. And now I want to talk about the dynamics.
of participating in the Holy Spirit, the dynamics of the Spirit. And you should understand a little bit about dynamics before I begin. What I mean when I'm talking about dynamics is to talk about the how of a thing. It's not just what is communicated, it's how it is communicated. And it makes all the difference. I'm sure you know the story about the Sunday school teacher who was having trouble getting the kids in the room and finally exasperated, he said, Come in here and sit down, I'm going to teach you about the love of God if you don't sit down. Well, you see, he messed up. He fouled up the dynamics. The how is so important for participating in the what. The dynamics of the spirit are so important for participating in the reality of Jesus Christ. Because you can see who he is when you see how to see. So this is what I'm after. The dynamics and movement of the Holy Spirit, when our spirits testify with that spirit that we belong to him and we are his people. Now the first text is a very short one for the first part of what I want to say. And then there's a much longer text that I'll get to when I get to the second part of what I want to say. The first text is in the second chapter of 1 Corinthians, just a couple of verses in this book where Paul says so much about the movement and power of the Spirit, the contaminations of the Spirit, and here is where we Presbyterians from this book get our rule of everything decently and in order. In relationship to, right in the context of the Spirit, everything decently and in order. So the little text says, For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For what person knows a man's thoughts except the Spirit of the man which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now the thing I want you to notice there, and hold it in mind while I move on to other things, is that Paul here is drawing an analogy, setting up a relationship between the way in which the dynamics of human beings develop and move and give us understanding and knowledge and the way in which the Holy Spirit moves to search out the depths of God to reveal to us the nature of God. So there is a relationship between our spirit and God's spirit. And this is a marvelous arrangement. It's a marvelous arrangement that you can look into self-understanding under the illumination of the Holy Spirit, see your spirit, and in seeing your spirit, gain illumination about who the Holy Spirit is. It's a marvelous arrangement. And Paul is here talking about the analogy between human spirit and Holy Spirit. And I'm going to come back to this and try to develop what this means in just a minute. And to begin with, in terms of the content of what I want to say, I want to pick up where I left off last evening. 
I told you that it took me a couple of years to assimilate what happened in that automobile accident. That's because, as I think I said, it takes a long time to agree with yourself that it's more important, whatever the risk, to live four-dimensionally rather than two-dimensionally. And I was well-heeled and well-supported and well-approved for two-dimensional existence. Why should I give that up? Why should I go ahead and risk four-dimensionality? After all, I was an, a tenured professor in a Reformed theological seminary. Why should I start talking about the experience of the Spirit of God? Well, your laughter, of course, tells me the answer, but it took me two years to get that through my head. Because if there is all decently in order and no spirit, forget it. Just like if there is all spirit and no decently in order, then we have the fanaticism that we're all also concerned about. They belong together. And this is the thing. The theology and the doctrine are not there to oppress you with tradition and the rule of the church. They are the language of the people of God who have struggled for ages with the very thing that we are struggling with in the Spirit, to try to say what is so important to us. So the theology, the history of the church, and the history of the church's struggles all belong to us as ways of trying to say what the power of the Spirit in us is saying to us in our individual and personal lives. They belong together. So in a Reformed seminary, it's perfectly appropriate. And by the way, that's at the heart of the Reformed tradition. It's perfectly appropriate to introduce the life and vitality of the Spirit and argue that Spirit and theology go together, hand in glove. They belong to each other. One of the most tragic tales I ever heard was of a seminary student who came and told me that he came from a Presbyterian church and then he went off to a mountaintop, probably led by a Methodist, He said, there I had an experience of the Spirit of God, and I came back and told my Presbyterian pastor what experience I had. The pastor said, look, you came out first in the catechism class. Forget about the experience. Why couldn't he have seen they belong together? The Spirit and theology, they belong together. Spirit gives life. The theology gives eyes, understanding. They need each other. So finally, I agree with myself after two years that I can talk about the Spirit of God. Well, not everybody agreed that I should talk about the Spirit of God, including my, my colleagues. They were pretty sure I got hit harder than I thought I did. <laughs> Others said, well, that's his Methodist background coming out and so on. But what really kept me persuaded, and in addition to the gracious life in my family, which I'll talk to you about some more, what really kept me persuaded was what happened in the lives of people with whom I counseled. When I told them, I'm not going to do the orthodox, or neo-orthodox, if you like, neo-Freudian type of counseling anymore. I'm going to counsel you in a different way. And when I saw what happened, nobody could persuade me that I shouldn't agree to four-dimensionality. Here's a case of a woman. She was a minister. 
graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary. Okay? She was an effective minister, but she would not do a funeral. She tried every way she could to avoid doing funerals, so she came and we started to do some counseling. Now, this was before I agreed with myself that I should do four-dimensional type counseling. She came and I tried to help her explore her past. So as we would talk, I would delve into the past struggles looking for some deep, dark, dirty secrets or something like that in order to help her overcome her problem. The striking thing was that at the end of every session, she would begin to get very spacey like this. And just as the session was about to close, she would pass out on the sofa. Now, of course, in my neo-Freudian understandings, that's, of course, manipulation. She's trying to force me to stay with her. No doubt some deep, dark Freudian reason for this, too. So I wasn't going to buy that. I just let her sleep it off on the sofa, and I went and took the next person in the next office. So I counseled with her for about a year or so. And then I decided I was going to have to change my way of doing things. So I told her, look, I can't do this with you anymore the way I've been doing it. I'm going to have to assume some different things. And the first thing I'm going to assume is that the Spirit of God is a reality. And every counseling, every bit of counseling we do is going to take place in conjunction with and in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. And I said, if you don't want to do this, that's fine. I'll find someone else with whom you can work in the more conventional way. And she said, oh, good, I'm glad. Now I can tell you what's really bothering me. <laughs> oh, I said. What? And she says, well, you know, when we start exploring my past in the course of the sessions, I just, I get so involved in the past and I begin, everything begins to kind of come apart. And then she says, toward the end of the sessions, I start... hearing this screaming. This screaming in the back of my head and I can't stop it. And so I have to lie down on the sofa and go to sleep until I can get myself together enough to leave this office. Now right now I'm at this point in the course of counseling so full of the spirit I have, you know, unmitigated optimism, right? So I say, oh, fine, I'm glad you told me this. So you just sit right here, and I'm going to sit right beside you, and I'm going to lay my hands on your head, and we're just going to ask the Lord to take this away. Now, understand, I'm not a practicing exorcist. I don't go, heal! <laughs> like that. That's a little too close to imitating the enemy. No, I just sat there quietly. I began to pray with my hands on her head. Now you understand, she's a very rigid person. She practically never cried. And if she laughed, it was a kind of high laugh. Yeah, you know, up there. And I began to pray. And while I was praying, sitting next to her, suddenly she whirled around and she started to pound on my shoulder. Now fortunately, I was in a good position. So she pounded and I prayed and I have something in me told her just keep right on praying. And so I just prayed quietly just for the Lord to take this out of her. And so she pounded and I prayed. And after she pounded for a while, suddenly she began to cry. And it was a deep down cry. Way down there. 
sobs just right out of the base of her existence. And after she had cried for a while, then she began to laugh, and it was a full laughter. And she laughed, and she stood up, and she looked at me, and she picked up her coat and her purse, and she says, now I'm going to leave you, and I'm not going to see you anymore. And off she left, off she went. Well, of course, she did come back, but here is what she told me. Now, this is only the beginning of the story. She said, I went home. I could hardly wait to get to a scriptures. And I started to read the scriptures. Now, I never told her anything about praying in tongues or anything. She started to read the scripture, and she said, I started to pray in a different way than I had ever prayed before. And I said, that's great. But you see, the business was only begun. It was only the start of something. What she had now was the power she needed to go back into her personal history and heal the very roots of her personality that gave openness to that power of evil that had moved into her. And so counseling continued. But now it continued under the guidance and power of the Spirit. And eventually, you see, she had a dream, a powerful dream. And in this dream, she was a little girl in a big, dark room, and she's running to get out of this room. She's terrified. And just as she gets to the door, somebody slams the door, and she runs against the door and pounds, and she can't get out. And she wakes up terrified. And she says, I remember... I remember when that happened. It was when my grandmother died, and the grandmother was the only person in the whole family that she could talk to. Happens a lot. Don't let it happen. Grandmother's the only one that she could talk to. Can't talk to the parents, so you talk to the grandparents, you see. And when she died, I was just at a loss. Everything, my world collapsed, and I remember being taken to the crematorium where they were I mean, to take care of my grandmother's remains, and, we, and I was in that room, and I was just, I was so, it was something weird in there, and I tried to run out, and they slammed the door. But you see, understand, the power of the Spirit made it possible for her to see it now, to see what it was. And now she is apart from it. She is standing in the power of the Spirit, seeing what it was that wounded her and hurt her so badly. So now she can be a child of the Spirit, rather than a child of the fear, rather than a child that runs in the face of death. And she left the counseling and in her congregation, there was a woman who was a very dear friend of hers who was dying of cancer. This woman minister sat with her every day and loved her and prayed with her, and she did her funeral. And when she went to a conference one time, you know, people sit around the conference sometimes and the leader will say, tell us something about yourself so that we can get to know you. You know, and you're supposed to say something interesting. I have three blue children or something. 
And they went around and said their several things. When it came to her, she didn't know what she was going to say, but what she said was, I am spirit. That's the truth about me. I am spirit. And you are spirit. And she is spirit. And she is still spirit. Do you know she then contracted MS? Right at the time where she was about to adopt a child. And everybody said to her, you shouldn't adopt a child if you have MS. And she says, on the contrary. This is spirit. I'm going to have that child. And I'm going to love that child. And it's going to work healing in me. And it's going to be the best mother that child could ever have. And she has the child. And she loves the child. Now that's spirit. And you are spirit. Now what does it mean to be spirit? That's the question. Now to begin with, I want you to realize when I say you are spirit, I'm not telling you to be something you aren't already. You are already spirit, even if you haven't been born again, even if you haven't received the baptism of the spirit or whatever language you want to use to talk about these things. You are spirit. From the time you are born, you are spirit. And that's because you are so made that you are a self and that self is constantly at work creating and composing a world and then recomposing and recreating that world. Now, how does that take place? And it's very important to look at this. Now, I know I may lose half of you at this point, but it's very important to be a little bit didactic. Try to be patient. If you doze off, do it quietly. Okay. Can you see this board? Can everybody see the board? What I want to do is give you a little sample of how anybody can discover that he or she is already spirit. And I'm saying anybody can understand this. But I'm setting it over against your understanding of yourself as conscience, for instance. You think of yourself as someone who needs to be good, to do the good thing, in order to feel what? Freedom from your conscience. You need to take good, children, good care of your children in order to be a good parent. Why? Why, so as to not suffer conscience when they don't turn out right. Maybe. You need to understand everything. Now, this is my problem. And so what are you? Mind? No, you're not mind. And you are not conscience. Well, I need to feel like I belong to a group. What are you then, a social entity? No, you're not a social entity. You are not conscience, not primarily mind. You are all of those things, but not primarily. Primarily, centrally, and it's so important to realize this. Because all of these things, mind, conscience, and social 
groupthink are all there to quash, to squelch the fact that you are spirit. And if you're really together, if you're really in a group, if you really know what conscience is, if you really know what understanding is, it will all come out of your knowledge of yourself as spirit. This is the fundamental reality about you, and it's from this standpoint that you participate in the Holy Spirit. Now, anybody and everybody is spirit. The only thing is, without being born again, without experience, the baptism of the Holy Spirit or whatever, however you want to talk about it, the human spirit goes awry. It gets confused. It defeats itself. It locks itself into all kinds of double binds and traps it can't get out of. Nevertheless, we remain spirit. Now, what do I mean by spirit? Okay. In order to experience this, I want to take the simplest little sample. This is called the nine dot problem. Can you see the nine dots? Can you see the nine dots? The nine dot problem consists of trying to draw four straight lines continuously through the nine dots without taking your chalk off the blackboard. Do you know the nine dot problem? Some of you know the nine dot problem. If you know the nine dot problem, you can work on the stick stick problem. <laughs> That's six sticks, three inches on a side, and you're supposed to arrange the six sticks so as to form four equilateral triangles, three inches on a side. Okay, now, what I'm doing with this is in a very minor way, I'm intruding upon your ordinary world. Because if you take the four lines and do what people ordinarily do, is that you will try to draw the four lines like this. Now you have one line left over and two dots, and you say, oh, I'll be cagey this time. I'll go the other way. I'll go across. That will fool them. Two, three. Now I have one line left and three dots, and you're getting worse. And you say to yourself, look, I came to a conference to understand God who wants to do puzzles. And you stamp out. <laughs> I want something deep and profound. No little gimmicky games on the blackboard. And you see, I got you right there. Because I intruded on your ordinary world. I bothered you enough to make you stomp out. And now we have the first step in the movement of the spirit. Because the spirit begins to move when it tears you out of the ordinary and creates a kind of disequilibrium that makes you want to be something that you wouldn't ordinarily be if it weren't for the movement of that spirit. So we begin, first of all, can you read that context? Can I read that? Context? The word context here simply refers to the nine dots and the problem. And it's very important you understand this because the spirit doesn't take place out there somewhere. The spirit moves right within the context of ordinary life. The context allows you to experience this as a problem. You wouldn't have to experience it as a problem. Some of my smart students say to me, that's no problem. 
You simply have too small a frame of reference. All you have to do is draw three parallel lines and they'll meet out there and the problem is what you do with the extra line, not the extra dot, right? Now, those are smart alecky students. Don't pay any attention to them. <laughs> Stick with this. Stick with stomping out and being angry because you didn't want to have to do this kind of a problem and you didn't do well on IQ tests anyhow. And you go out and you have this conflict in this context. And you take it out and you put it out of your consciousness. But the rule of spirit is out of consciousness is not out of mind because you are spirit and you resist disequilibrium. You resist being said. Now notice, there's something in you already before you become Christian, before you're able to participate in the Holy Spirit, you already resist that which is destructive, disequilibrating dis in you. And so you go out, you put it out of consciousness, you get in your car and you say, I'm going to take a little drive. Maybe I can get something of God from the countryside if I can get it. So then there's an interlude. A period in which you're not thinking about the problem, but under the surface, your spirit is scanning and working on all the elements of the problem. You're not even aware of it. And you get to a traffic light, and it's red, and you stop. Now, you know, there's a, a fairly common moment of psychological detachment that occurs between the seeing of the red light and when it turns green and before the horn behind you honks. You know there's a kind of drift sometimes. So you stop. And while there's a moment of drift, there's a kind of a pause. Suddenly you say, Oh! Oh! And then it dawns on you. This is an insight. It dawns on you. And you know you know before you have even tested it out. You know you got it. And what it forces you to do is move out of the frame of reference within which the problem was established. And what your ingenious spirit does with this just little sample is work on the parts that won't go together to make them go together in a surprising way to give you a new way of viewing things. And so, under the surface, your spirit has not assimilated the four lines to the nine dots like you were trying to do before. It has assimilated the nine dots to the four lines and turned it around. And now, of course, oh, you say, and right following up on the insight, before you're even sure, there is this, I mean, before you've even tested it, there is this release of tension the aha. And notice, when you have the aha, it doesn't take you off someplace, it puts you back into the world. So much back into the world that you let the horn behind you honk while you get a little piece of paper out of the glove compartment and you write it down and sure enough, it's just like you thought it would be and you turn around and you come back and you come stomping back in and you say to me, is this it? And I say, yeah, that's it. 
verification, confirmation. It's all right, my students can't read what I write anyway. Verification, confirmation follows upon the inside. If you're working on the six-stick problem, you still have to get it outside the frame of reference within which the problem was conceived. You have to lift it off the blackboard, lift it off the blackboard. Think of it in a new way. Now look, you're automatically made so you do this. You don't have to try. You are spirit. And it's out of your spirit that you even create a conscience. It's out of your spirit that you create understanding. It's out of your spirit that you create group interaction. It's your spirit. You are spirit. And in spirit, you are image of God, who is spirit. The trouble is that the spirit gets cramped and it gets distorted. And we lose the integrity of the spirit. And so we fragment it. And we lose some of the main characteristics of this pattern. Now remember, I'm talking about the how. We lose the realization that spirit begins with the acceptance of conflict. Working on it. Even if you can't work on it all the time, spirit thrives on the affirmation of accurate embrace of conflict. Now, I'm not just talking about starting a fight. That's not the point. The point is that I know from just talking with you in one day how many deep-running conflicts there are. Spirit in you wants to deal with them, does not want to deny or repress them, and spirit is thoroughly capable. So there's a positive value placed upon conflict. But it's the real conflict not just starting fights. Fights can be just another way of diverting you from the real conflict. Insight. You know what takes place in insight? Let me teach you just one word if you don't know it already. Because it's so important for the interpretation of Scripture. The word is bisociation. It's when two frames of reference come together surprisingly to form a new and meaningful unity. Two terms that are ordinarily dissociated come together and form a new meaning. Now, this is the way humor proceeds. And at this point, I tell bad jokes, okay? Just one bad joke to illustrate the point. A sadist is someone who is kind to a masochist. <laughs> now, the reason you're laughing is that I think you laugh. The reason that is humorous, if it is humorous, the reason that's humorous is that two frames of reference, which usually do not go together, that's kindness and sadomasochistic behavior, in that one particular illustration come together to give a surprising new meaning. It's surprising that those two frames of reference could come together under any circumstances. But they do, and when they do, there is that uproarious laughter that you gave me, which is illustration of, which is illustration of the release of tension. You understand by association? 
Now, what I'm doing is giving you a little simple sample of something that is very much bigger, in fact. But it's, remember, it's the simplest illustration I can give you of the fact that you are spirit. And you are always dissociating. You are always putting new frames of reference together to get new meaning. You do that with each other. We do that with each other. That's how we put ourselves together in order to talk. I have to put my frame of reference together with what you say in order to create a world between us so we can converse. That's spirit. So by association is what allows me to put the nine dots and the four lines together in that way and come up with a new sense of meaning. I already said that the release of tension doesn't take you out of the world. And if you have an experience of spirit that takes you out of the world, then I say that's not spirit. That's a fragmentation of spirit. It should put you back in the world in a way that is more concrete and more down to earth than ever. Remember last night I was talking about seeing my family? It was a release of tension that allowed me to really be in the world. And verification is proving it out. That is, the sense of being in the world puts you into relationships with people and with yourself that will prove out. And you prove that you are spirit over and over again. So there is, in this description of how, Two or three of the things that necessarily must be held together in order to understand spirit. There is a combination between continuity and discontinuity. The spirit is the wind, and that's the discontinuity. But it's always the same spirit and recognizable. That's the continuity. And there must be discontinuity and continuity. The other thing is that because this is a kind of pattern or grammar or structure or logic according to which the spirit mediates to our spirits, that means you can enter this at any point. You don't have to enter it with conflict, like I was giving you the illustration of. Sometimes you enter in the middle. Sometimes you know the answers before you know what the question is. And in case you think that's sloppy thinking, that's the way Einstein discovered how to think about Newton's Principia Mathematica. When he first read it, he knew that there was a problem in it. Furthermore, he knew that he knew what the problem was even before he had worked it out. He had a sense of the answer before he even knew what the question is. But more than that, when you have a religious experience, when you have an experience of God, oftentimes you know you know the answer, but you don't know what the question is. Here's a woman who's just working around in her kitchen one morning. She has a happy normal, ordinary, suburban form of existence. And suddenly she experiences, or gradually she begins to experience, and then it becomes a full thing for her. She experiences the presence of God right there in the kitchen. Now she has an answer to questions she didn't know she had. And you see the happy, normal, well-adjusted, too well-adjusted, de-spiritualizing suburban existence was the problem she couldn't let herself see. And so now the Spirit of God comes into her. She has an answer and she's just beginning to discover the questions. And her family discovers the questions along with her. It's very hard to have somebody suddenly experience the presence of God in an otherwise well too well-equilibrated form of existence. So now everybody says, why can't you give up that answer? Because, you know, everything would be fine if only you didn't have this God business in our family. 
So the Spirit of God will show up and give you answers before you even know what the questions are. But the point is that if that happens, then you will go back and you will have to discover what the real conflicts are and you'll have to work through this again. This is the pattern of the how of the Spirit. So you don't just get answers, bap, bap, bap. You get an answer that takes you back into the conflict, just like with my case of Norma, which is the name of the person that I was talking about, but it's not her real name. The name of the person I was talking about earlier. When she has this powerful spiritual experience in my office, then we have to go back and discover what the real conflict is and it's to do, having to do with her family and so on. Then we work back through and then she can verify what happened to her by ministering to this person who has cancer and doing her funeral. So, there is continuity and discontinuity. There is a kind of integrity about this process which means that you can enter it at any point and it will always be a compelling thing for us to work through the whole pattern. Now, I explained this once at the uh, medical uh, religious division of the medical society or uh, yeah, medical society in Houston and a psychiatrist was there commenting on what I was saying. He'd read the book, The Transforming Moment, and he says, you know, at first when I read this book, I didn't understand what uh, Dr. Loder was getting at. And the more I read it, though, the more I began to see things in it that I hadn't seen before. And now I understand that it's a very important uh, piece of work. I said, good, I said, that's very good. The spirit is at work in this man. <laughs> he said, let me illustrate what I mean. He said, I've discovered that when I happen to miss an appointment or I forget an appointment and I show up late and the person is still waiting for me there, invariably that person starts to get better in subsequent sessions. Why is that? Because the doctor has become human. He's broken out of his nine dots. And now that the doctor has become human and broken out of the professional nine dots, they together can begin to be spirit and recompose the world. He said, I had another illustration of this. I went to a, an athletic event one night. I guess it was an athletic event in the Houston Astrodome. You know anything about the Houston Astrodome? It's a huge, round building. And it's all the same all the way around. So it's very hard to come out the door that you go in. Now knowing this, he parked his car right next to an Exxon sign so that when he came out, he could locate the Exxon sign and then locate his car. Went into the Astrodome, watched the event, and came out and started to walk around the Astrodome. He couldn't find his car. He was comforted by the fact that two or three hundred other people were walking around the Astrodome <laughs> looking for their cars. It finally dawned on him that the Exxon sign, it was so late that the Exxon sign had gone out. Now, what do you do when your Exxon sign goes out? You know what you do? You become spirit, which means you start to recreate the world. And do you know we hang on to Exxon signs even after they've gone out? You walk around the Astrodome for the rest of your life looking for a gone out Exxon sign. Let go! Let go! Be spirit! 
So he said, I began to have to recreate and reconstruct the situation. I remember the cobblestones on the street there. I began to remember something about the skyline, something about the characteristics of the building. And finally, I found my car. I got home about an hour late. He said, the real proof of the spirit is my wife believed me. <laughs> One more illustration he gave. Because he's showing, you see, what I'm trying to show you is the tremendous variability. Oh, you've got so many possibilities because you're spirit. You see, it's tremendous variability, just in the natural case of things. I had a boy come to me who had a psychological tick. You know what a psychological tick is? It's when you do something like this. And the boy came to me and he kept doing this all the time. And so I talked to him a little while. And it's very disconcerting to talk to somebody who's always doing this. You know? I talked to him a little while. And I realized that his mother had grown up in this little town in Texas, had a childhood sweetheart who she wanted to marry, whom she wanted to marry, but then the childhood sweetheart moved away, and so she married someone else and had this boy. And then the childhood sweetheart moved back into town, so she divorced the boy's father and married the childhood sweetheart, and now the boy is going, who is my father? And all the time he's saying, no, no, no. So the psychiatrist prescribes the symptom. He says, I understand what you're saying with that psychological tick and you keep it up. You keep it up until everybody gets your message. And of course, as soon as he prescribed the symptom, that took all the vitality out of it because part of the symptom was defiance. If there's nothing to defy, then you don't do it anymore, right? So then the boy went back home without his psychological tick and everybody said, what happened to you? How come you don't have your psychological tick anymore? Their Exxon sign went out. You see, as long as you have somebody who's sick in the family, you don't have to be sick. You take care of the sick one. And they got well, then they had to deal with their own sickness. And they began to be spirit. You understand? We're made so that we're supposed to recreate and recompose the world. It's in the very nature of things. The trouble is, as I said, it gets fragmented, frustrated, quenched and grieved. Now, what I have said so far, anybody could understand, I suppose, I hope. What I was starting out to say is, though, that the understanding of yourself as spirit is the clue to you about what it means to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. See, your spirit is supposed to testify with the Holy Spirit, that you are a child of God. And now what I'm going to do is read you a text that will give you, in very brief compass, the movement and power of the Holy Spirit that follows the same pattern. Only difference is that all that I've been talking to you about now is in two dimensions. It's the way you create and compose your world. But the Spirit of God cooperates with this loves this, wants you to be spirit, and therefore will give you a spirit of power in four dimensions that will help you to be spirit in two. Now, the text I'm going to read to you is... Do you understand that? Am I okay with you? I may not be okay with you. Do you understand what I'm saying? Are you there? Human spirit? Okay, moving from two to four dimensions. Now, the text I'm going to read to you is chapter 24, beginning at the 13th verse. 
of the book of Luke. <laughs> well, let me finish. I know you're eager, but just... <laughs> now, the principle I'm working on, and the principle you can work on as you read these post-resurrection experiences is that what happens in the post-resurrection experiences of Jesus is a very tangible illustration of what you can count on the Spirit of God to do. Jesus is constantly appearing and disappearing, as if to tell you, look, there is an invisible world that I'm trying to communicate to you, and just notice it, will you? And here is how it works. Two men. That very day, two men. Now, I should just set the context. These two men have been followers of Jesus. They had all kinds of hopes for him as Messiah. And then he was crucified. And they're depressed. And when you get depressed, sometimes you take a walk. So they're depressed, taking a walk. That day, very that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation which you are holding with each other as you walk? Notice the divine courtesy. You'll notice it all the way through. The Spirit of God doesn't show up and say, Shape up. The Spirit of God shows up and says, what is this conversation which you're holding with each other as you walk? And they just stood still, looking sad. And then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Why aren't you laughing? That's a joke. Jesus is the only one that does know what happened. You're not dissociating. Luke must have been smiling when he was writing this, right? And then he said, what things? Jesus is the first Rogerian non-directive counselor. And they said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped he was to he was the one who was to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since this happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. And they came back saying that they had and did not find his body. And they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now notice... 
We've been confronted with a conflict in four dimensions, and now we're beginning to scan. I'll go back over this in a minute, but just notice it as we're moving along. And so they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he appeared to be going further, another manifestation of the divine courtesy, because when you get further down, you'll see that their hearts were getting hot. They were getting close to something. You know, it's like the children's game when you say, you're getting hot, you're getting hot, because you're getting close to something that's hidden. They're getting close to something that's hidden. And he says, in effect, now as he says, I'm going to go further if, it's, if you don't want this. Because he's saying, if I go in with you, something is going to happen that will change you and you'll never be the same. Are you sure you want it? And not everybody does want it. A lot of people would prefer to have their neurosis. At least they know where they are. They prefer to be neurotic rather than to be free. I'm always the one who starts things but never carries through. And nobody expects me to carry through. And I get the joy of starting things. And, you know, it's a neurotic form of behavior. But I'd rather have that than the freedom of having to carry through and really do something. See, if you're a neurotic, sometimes you prefer the deficient form of behavior. So he's saying, are you sure you want it? He makes like he would go further. But they say, we want it. Stay with us. For it is now, it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven gathered together, and those who were with them who said, See, the minute they come in, disciples in Jerusalem say, The Lord has risen indeed and appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened to them on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is a very tangible description in a very short compass of the way in which the Spirit of God moves through the history of our lives, moves through the history of the world. Because what the Spirit does first is enter in, establish a kind of rapport, and then begins to expose the full dimensions of the conflict. Now, these two men have a four-dimensional conflict. Who are they in themselves? They are Jews. And what is their world? Their world is Israel. And they have created their understanding of Israel. They have created the symbols, the language, the culture. And the culture has fed back and told them who they are. And that's their reality. Self and world. These men and Israel. And so what did they do? They tried to figure Jesus into their two-dimensional world. How? He's to be the Messiah who they knew was to come to save their two-dimensional world. But now they've got a four-dimensional conflict because the Messiah that they had figured into their two-dimensional world has been crucified. More than that, they're faced with corruption inwardly because the priests are corrupt. They're faced with oppression outwardly because of the Roman occupation. And they've got a four-dimensional conflict. And the only hope they have is something the women told them from the tomb. That they didn't see anything but the guy think that they think is risen. And it's the women. I'm sorry about that. But... It's just the women. Can't take too much from that in the biblical context, sorry. But that's how it is. But they have some hope. So as they walk along the road with this four-dimensional conflict, there comes 
the visible but unidentified stranger who walks with them, who supports them, who gets them to tell what their problem is, what the real problem is, and then he begins, as the Spirit does always with us as an inner teacher, he begins to search out the inner working of the history of their world and he takes them back into the prophets he takes them back into Moses and he shows them all the prototypes that are there that will help them to begin to reconstruct the world in different terms and as they begin to see it come together they begin to get hot their hearts begin to burn and then he comes into the upper room they take him in and when they take him in, he breaks the bread for them. And he holds out to them the broken bread. And the broken bread is a symbol of his brokenness. And when they see this symbol of his brokenness, it resonates with their brokenness. And now you see, by breaking the bread, he has made their problem even worse. And this is what the Spirit of God does. He will not tolerate a superficial understanding of the problem. He will push it to its limits. And they realize it isn't just their world that fell apart. It's that they didn't even realize who Jesus was. They feel deserted by somebody they didn't even understand. And he breaks the bread and it exposes their brokenness. And he says, here, take this. And it's, oh my God. But it's not just an exacerbation and a deepening of brokenness because the ultimate brokenness is held together in resurrected hands. So you see, right there, holding out the bread to them, the broken bread in resurrected hands, is the full limit of reality in Jesus Christ. It's, it's void and holy right in one presence. And that's what it means to be in Christ, is to hold holy and void in one, one grasp, one embrace. And he's saying, here, take it in. Can you swallow this? Can you really swallow it? And then they recognize who he really is. He's not the Savior of Israel. He's the Savior of the whole world. The whole world. All of existence. Swallow this if you can. And when they recognize him, what happens? He vanishes. Now that's the question. Why is it when their eyes were opened that they saw less? Because when you recognize who Jesus is, when you really see who he is, he cannot be an object that you compose into your world. You become someone he composes into his world. Everything is turned inside out. Now look. You already know that from nine dots and four lines. That's the way you get an insight. Is you turn everything inside out. And so when you see who he really is, you realize you can't put him in your little world. That Jesus will never do. Jesus has to put you into his world. And when you become an object in his world, then you don't see him out there. You see the world through his eyes. He becomes the lenses through which you see everything. And of course he has to vanish in order to make you his people. And so what happens? 
These men are excited. There's a release of tension that throws them back into the world without fear. You know, they go back from Emmaus to Jerusalem in the dark. It's not smart to run around outside Jerusalem in the dark. Unless you're not afraid of the dark anymore. You can walk in the world and you're not afraid. You don't have to be afraid. This masters the whole world. And if you belong to that, you don't have to be afraid of the dark anymore. And so he come rushing back to Jerusalem. Into the place where the disciples are. And you're so eager to tell them before they can say anything. Before you can say anything, they say, Jesus is risen and appeared to Peter. And you say, no, 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 that's our lie. Jesus is risen and appeared to Peter. Appeared to us. And that's how the church is created. It is not created by socializing and teaching people how to be good little Christians. It is not created by conscience. It is not created by... Social dynamics. It is not created by understanding. It is created by spirit. The spirit of God creates our spirit so that we can recompose each other always as children of God under the lordship of God. So as Dan was saying, that's how we are gathered. This is the dynamic of the spirit and you can count. You can count on it that the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit will enter into the depths of the conflict that you have and show you how it's worse than you thought it was in order to make it better than you ever thought it could be. As long as you try to keep it like this, it will never get any more than that. In fact, it will shrink. But if you let the Spirit of God come in, He'll show you how much worse it is so it can be better than you ever thought it could be so you can be thrust into the world to be part of the gathered people. I was going to tell you another story, but I think I'm well out of time. Is that right? We'll go on next time with the directions of this.